The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Uh, If you're not familiar, it's right after Malachi, and it is uh, right before Mark. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you want a Bible, we always have lots of them. We order them by the case, and we keep them around because we want everybody that would like a copy of the Bible to have one. So if you don't have one of your own, uh, grab someone with a Here to Help badge, and we'd be happy to give you one. It's our gift to you. Uh, If you don't have something to follow along with us this evening, scriptures will be on the screen so we can all study God's Word together. Uh, We are continuing this week in our series. It's called Spiritual Disciplines, Glorifying God Through Humble Obedience. Now, we set out on this journey towards greater spiritual discipline last week when we covered the subject of fasting, and uh, I'm hoping that went well for everybody. I also gave a lengthy introduction to the series. It was a bit of a compass, if you will, to guide us along our way. Uh, And that sermon is available online, so if you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and listen. I think it'll be helpful for us to all stay together as we work our way through this series. Um, I think that's always true, but maybe in particular for this series. So we set up last week, 1 Timothy 4-7, as a bit of a guide rail to help us as we explore the freedom gifts God has given us in the spiritual disciplines. 1 Timothy 4-7 admonishes us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Now, last week I asked you a question that will determine the fruitfulness of this study for you. What do I mean when I say that? Basically, your answer to this question is going to determine whether or not us working through this is going to be helpful for you, life-giving for you, exciting for you, or whether or not it's going to kind of be a drudgery and you'll just be checking your watch hoping that I'll stop talking. You'll have a better chance tonight because of my throat, but you just never know. I can push through, so uh, praise God. Uh, But the fruitfulness of the study is going to be determined by the answer to this question. What do you want to be. Now, God has already stated in his word what he desires for us to be. Romans 8.29 tells us that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. To simplify that and kind of make it into an easy-to-digest statement, God wants us to be like Jesus. That's God's desire for us. Now, being like Jesus is synonymous with godliness because we know that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, according to Colossians 1. It also says that in Hebrews, that he's the expressed image of God. And so the way Jesus spoke, reacted to situations, the way uh, he handled himself, we, we, we see how God would react in any of those situations by the way Jesus did. So to, to be godly is to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus is to be godly. Those are synonymous. So the question for you, dear friend, is this. Do you want what God wants? Uh, Do you want to be like Jesus? If not, that is where you must start. Because if there is no passionate vision in your heart for the purpose of these disciplines that we're learning about, the best that you can hope for is a duty-oriented and joyless adherence to practices that will perhaps have the form of godliness, but they will lack any power or true ability to transform. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, and you have tasted and seen that his mercy and grace 
are unmatched in their eternal sweetness. There should be a desire in you to be like Jesus. Now, if you have yet to encounter the loving kindness and immeasurable beauty of the grace of God, if you are here tonight and you have yet to partake of the heavenly gift of grace through faith in Christ, my prayer is that you will be open to the truth tonight and that that truth will set you free and that you will be able to taste and see the Lord is good. Now, the point of everything that I just said is this. I'm going to boil all that down. Desire precedes discipline. And I don't want us to waste all these weeks talking about these spiritual disciplines and not deal first with our motivations and our desires because it won't do us any good. Desire precedes discipline. If there is no desire for godliness, there will be no discipline that leads to it. That's how this will have to go. And so I'm asking you to assess that first. So we're going to read Matthew 4, 1 through 11 together, and uh, we'll go on from there, okay? Matthew 4, I'm in verse 1, read to verse 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Praise God for his word. This week, we are going to discuss the spiritual discipline of Bible intake. Now, I know that the word intake is kind of a cold, sterile word. However, it allows for a broad array of ways we can and should interact with the Scriptures. There's other words we could use, but it would be too narrowing because we want to kind of be open to all the ways that uh, God, by His grace, has given us to bring His Word into us, okay? So we came here to Matthew 4 because we see one of the reasons why studying and memorizing, reading, Meditating, hearing the scriptures is so important. Uh, Ephesians 6 tells us that the word of God is a sword with which we can battle the evil one. And uh, here we see Jesus wield it so masterfully in his battle with the devil that, I mean, Leonardo the Ninja Turtle would have been jealous of this sword fight right here. I mean, because you see what Satan was doing. He was even trying to use the word. He was even trying to quote scripture at Jesus, twisted a little bit, which is how he always does, trying to weave a little bit of truth into the lie so that it goes down like sugar with medicine. But Jesus knew the word of God so well that he recognized that and was able to take well, like, like an, with an encyclopedic memory and quote scripture back, use it as a sword, wield it to battle his enemy. And uh, we see who won. That's, this is just one of the reasons why. It's important for us to study, to meditate, hear, read, and take in God's Word. If, if we want to be like Jesus, the Word of God is a non-negotiable necessity for us. 
Now, we know that Jesus didn't cheat. It'd be easy for us to say, okay, yeah, sure, you showed us the, the epic battle here in the wilderness between Jesus and the devil, and Jesus is quoting scripture, and, and, and probably the point you're trying to draw is, well, if Jesus knew scripture like that, then we should want to, well, well, that's the son of God, isn't it? That's not real fair. Here's what we know, though. We know that Jesus didn't cheat in his process of learning the scriptures. What do you mean learning the scriptures? If Jesus is God, did he have to learn the scriptures? That's what Luke 2 says. It says in Luke 2, it says he grew in wisdom and stature. That uh, he somehow, right, and this is weird, the hypostatic union, that's, the, that's a theological technical term for the fact that Jesus is 100% God. He never gave up his godness, but yet came into time and space and, and lived a full human existence. He was fully man and fully God. Well, can you explain that to me better? Not really. It's, it, that's, it's one of those things, right, that, that God has stated in his word that probably flies just a bit above where our intellect can grasp. However, we see that it is true. Jesus was fully God and yet fully man. So somehow his deity, his divine right was, was restricted and restrained so that he could have a human experience that allows him to be what Hebrews calls, which is a, a high priest who can sympathize with us, who understands what it's like to be tempted and hungry and thirsty, that he was always God, but yet took on fully the human experience. And so we know that Jesus, he had to learn the scriptures just like you or I could learn the scriptures. This is also why Jesus was baptized. This is why Jesus did all that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then later said, the same spirit that works in me, I'm leaving you and giving you. And so we don't want to see the way Jesus dealt with Scripture uh, and, and say, well, well it's not, he had kind of an unfair advantage. That's not true. He, he had the same opportunity we do, same difficulties we do. Uh, elements of Jesus' divinity were restrained so that he could experience life the way we do. And, and ultimately, that was part of why he was able to stand in and be our sacrifice. Uh, we also know from John 7.15, Jesus did not even receive a formal education. This must have been uh, from his family teaching him and his own study. Uh, in John 7, 15, uh, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and it says that the Jews were amazed. They said, how does this guy know everything he knows? Why, how is he talking like this, never having been educated, formally trained? And so Jesus didn't even have a college degree. Uh, and yet here he is quoting scripture, front to back, up and down. Uh, in his life and ministry, he went to the scriptures constantly. It was the platform with which he, he launched everything that he did. Okay, So when Jesus was challenged about divorce in Matthew 19, he began his answer with this. He said, have you not read? What's he saying there? He's referring to the Old Testament. He's referring to the, the scriptures that were assembled at that time, which was the, the Hebrew Old Testament. And he says, have you not read? So they're asking this question about divorce, and where does he point them? Well, what does popular opinion say today? Or what, what, you know, what, what does your favorite Pharisee say? No, he says, have you not read? And then he pulls them back to Genesis. He takes them to God's creative order and, and his purpose for marriage. Out of Genesis, out of the Bible. So Jesus, he knew the scriptures. He ministered out of the scriptures. The, the, the Bible was the platform with which he did all the ministry that he did. It was a power source for the way uh, he impacted the world in such a way that we're singing songs to him here uh, 2,000 plus years later. So uh, the word of God is a non-negotiable for those who are going to follow Jesus and to bear his name. Uh, amen for that. 
Before we work through more of why and how we interact with the Bible, let's, let's just take a brief moment to say what the Bible is. That's important. Uh, we don't want to take for granted that everybody gets that. Um, to, to say it in the, in the plainest terms possible, the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. First uh, Timothy 3.16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God breathed and useful, according to 1 Timothy 3.16. And its purpose is so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? So we don't just heap up knowledge or learn scripture uh, so that we can impress ourselves or others. Uh, it's so that we can do something about it and do something with it. God always has a purpose. The Bible is actually more of a library. It's not one book. It's 66 books in total. There's 39 in the Old Testament. There's 27 in the New Testament. Uh, all of those books, and this is part of why the Bible is a miracle. You don't really, I think we oftentimes get to the point where the Bible's a common thing to us because most of us, I don't know how many I have on my shelf, to be honest with you. There's a lot. I could reach just about anywhere and grab one in the dark, but Familiarity sometimes breeds contempt, right? And so we don't really realize how special this is because it is 66 different books, but we forget sometimes that those 66 books were written by 40 different authors over a span of roughly 1,500 years. And we start talking time frames, you're like, yeah, big deal. America's only been around a few hundred years, right? It hasn't been that long. 1,500 years from the oldest book of the Bible being written to the youngest book of the Bible being written. 1,500 years, 40 different authors in three different languages on several different continents, and yet, assembled together, the Bible is one story of a, of a redemptive arc, starting with God creating us in Genesis, us falling into sin, rebelling against him, and God's plan from that point forward, leading up to the culmination of his plan of redemption in Christ, and then the rest of the New Testament basically helping us understand how it is we now live in light of the fact that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died in our place for our sins, and then rose from the grave. The Bible is a miraculous book. The Bible is a self-authenticating document. Its timeless influence uh, and historical and prophetic accuracy make it stand out as unique over any other book ever written. We don't approach the Bible the same way we approach other, even books of antiquity. There are other books that are great, uh, that we can learn a lot from, but the Bible stands alone as the Word of God. And when I say self-authenticating, I'll, I'll, I'll flush that out in a minute, what that really means. The most common objection to believing that the Bible is the very Word of God, and thus authoritative, and, and let's be honest, many times people want an escape hatch from the Bible being the Word of God, because if the Bible is the Word of God, it describes a God who is holy and perfect, who is all-powerful, uh, who is omniscient, he's all-knowing, he spoke and created everything. And if, if the God of the Bible is indeed reality, then we owe him everything. And so that would include our obedience. And, and since the time of Adam and Eve, we have shown <laughs> that we're not so hip on obedience. We like to try to be our own God. And so oftentimes that, that fuels some of the vehement uh, attacks upon the scripture. But the most common objection you will hear to believing that the Bible is the Word of God and thus authoritative for us, for life and practice, is the fact that it was written and assembled by men. You ever heard anybody say that? 
Well, the Bible is written by men. Okay, That's, it's not a very strong argument because of the self-authenticating nature of the scriptures described above and because of the simple fact that God has involved mankind in the accomplishing of his divine purposes since the very beginning of creation. God involving mankind in the writing and assembling of the scriptures is in no way a deviation from his normative pattern as revealed in the word, right? I would just call your attention to, like right off the bat, God starts creating, he starts speaking, let there be light, let there be firmament, and he does the things, and, all, and right, it doesn't get too long down the process, he says, let us make man in our image, brings Adam on the scene, and then there's a bunch now of the variety of God's creation that needs to be named, right? It's, it's, it's the part of creation that many of you like more than humans and you need to get healed. It's the animals, right? I, just, I didn't have anything real inflammatory to say the whole time, so I think I'd make you mad about animals. That's always an easy nerve. So, uh, But who, here's my point. Who named the animals? I mean, God made all the animals. God's in charge, right? But what did God do? That's a, that's a big job, isn't it? Like all of these beautiful creatures I just created, they're going to have a name. Who, who, who did that responsibility fall on? It fell on Adam. Right off the bat, we see God involving mankind in the process of what he's doing. Uh, he, he created this beautiful garden and, and put Adam and Eve in it, and he said, your job's to cultivate. I'm giving you dominion over this thing. You're involved in what I'm doing. Uh, you're a part of this process. And so... It, it in no way, I, I don't know why we expect that God would have changed that when it came to the writing of his word and when it came to the assembling of his word. Uh, when we talk about it being a self-authenticating document, first of all, it's got historical references inside of it that many times have been verified through archaeology and then other outside sources. You've got, uh, you've got fulfilled prophecy, you've got, you know... I, the most prominent example that normally comes to my mind is Isaiah 700 years before crucifixions ever even invented, describing crucifixion as the way that Jesus would die. Uh, that's a pretty tough one to pull off. That's not just a parlor trick. That's something's going on there. And so that's not uh, the only example. It's just the one I, I tend to think of most. So uh, fulfilled prophecy, external verification, archaeological verification uh, aside. Um, now, there are those who would argue, because I, I, first of all, I went to Adam in my, in my defense of the fact that uh, God has used mankind in, in what he's doing from the beginning. There are those who would argue that defending the Bible from the Bible is circular reasoning. I'll let you think about that for a second. There are those that would say that's circular reasoning. I don't really believe even that I'm defending it. I believe the Bible defends itself. Because it is a living and, and sharper than any two-edged sword, according to the book of Hebrews. The Bible is, it can defend itself. It doesn't need me. It's been doing it a long time. There's been a lot of critics a long time trying to dismantle the truth of the scriptures and uh, take away its authority. It hasn't worked. However, aside from the fact that we have the self-authenticating elements of the Bible you do also have all of those external verifications. But it, it really doesn't need it. We also have enough copies of early manuscripts to know. Some people say, well, how do you know what you've got now uh, reflects what was there early on. And uh, there's, 
there's a, a discipline called textual criticism. There's, we, we have people that do this, right? And so part of the way you know that what we read today reflects what was written originally is you, you look really hard for early manuscripts. And, you know, when, when it comes to early works like the Iliad and, you know, Homer stuff and all of that, I mean, you've got 10, 12, a few copies. I mean, there's 25,000 full and fragmented copies of the New Testament. We have more textual verification for the authenticity and the accuracy of the Bible you hold in your hands than we do any other ancient document by far and away. It's, it's not even close. And so by the very ways that you, you possibly can verify these things, ultimately it does come down to faith. Let me say that. I, I just rattled off all this evidence for you, and I believe it's very compelling and should be considered if somebody's going to have this conversation. However, at the end of the day, we are coming down to this, this idea that this book being different than any other book, this book being the very word of God, it is going to be something that comes down to uh, trusting by faith. Uh, God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen not to just pop up every once in a while and kind of you know, materialize in the sky and wave at everybody. Uh, and I've heard people say, well, if he would just do that, then I would believe, you know, Romans 1 says, though, if, if you've got any common sense, you just look around at the beauty of this world, you'll understand that a very, very powerful God made it. And so he has revealed himself, maybe not in the ways that, that, that we would like, but ultimately uh, he's not playing hide-and-seek as much as some people would accuse him of. And I believe um, the beauty, depth, the staying power, and, and the absolute just transformative uh, ability this, this Bible has for people that really come to it humbly it's pretty undeniable evidence that these are the words of God. And so we want to treat the word of God in a sacred way. We don't want to be haphazard about it. We want to be careful with the way we approach it. We want to honor the word of God and, uh, and really fight that tendency we have to let it become a common thing to us, that we have a love letter from the God of the universe at our disposal at all times. It's pretty amazing and something that uh, we easily take for granted. Uh, Honestly, I think dismissing the Bible altogether with everything we know is, is an intellectually dishonest proposition. So, uh, but aside from that, without the Holy Spirit working on somebody's heart, the Bible's hard to understand and it's confusing. So that's understood. So we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to work on people's hearts, including our own. Amen? So what does a spiritually disciplined approach to the Word of God look like? It's a great question. Glad you asked it. Um, before, before I really answer that, though, I, I want to first plead with you, again, to honestly assess your desire to read, study, hear, and meditate on God's Word. And I want to use God's Word to help you ask yourself that question. Maybe you don't have a real good reference point for what that even looks like. I want to take some encouragement uh, from the Apostle Peter. This is 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3. I'm going to read this to you. He says this, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And so Peter, in describing what our desire for the word should be, he's encouraging us here to, <clears throat> he says, long for the pure milk of the word. He uses the analogy, the word picture of a newborn baby desiring milk. And, and I think sometimes we get this reference confused with the one that, that where it talks about, uh, you know, we need to move from milk to meat, and, and that's, that's a totally different thing. The only thing Peter's saying here is, 
We, as God's people, should have an insatiable desire for his word. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, let's think about it. How much does a newborn desire milk? Like, what else is on their radar? And, and we have a lot of people that are medically trained and, and, even, and work in the medical field so that they can answer this question for you. But most of you mamas know this. If, if, a baby, if a newborn baby comes out and is not drinking milk and trying to drink milk, what, what, are, what, what instantly are, are, we, are, are we just saying, ah, well, I'm not that concerned about that. Maybe they'll try something tomorrow. No, if a newborn baby goes an hour or two and is not trying to eat some milk, we are very concerned. We are automatically at like code red DEFCON. This is an emergency because this baby's stomach is so small this baby needs to eat that often. And so we are very concerned if that newborn baby is not looking for milk and taking milk in. Okay? So what's Peter saying here? The, the kind of haphazard, lackadaisical approach that we have to the Scriptures. We need to be alarmed if we don't have an insatiable desire to consume God's Word. Like a newborn baby longs for milk. And all of the implications that come along with that. And he says, if, if, as we do that, we'll grow in respect to salvation. And he even throws in there, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, if you have tasted, the, if you've experienced the unmatched splendor and beauty of the mercy and grace of God in Christ, what he's saying is, out of that, out of that first taste of the sweetness of God, there should be a desire to come, to approach his word, to feast upon it. Again and again, and that here's the thing that that appetite shouldn't shouldn't uh, reduce as you consume more, but but only increase. And so, if a newborn isn't drinking milk, it's an emergency. Here's what I think Peter's saying: If a Christian is not consuming God's word, caring about it, going after it, it's an emergency. It matters. He he was very specific. He said a newborn baby, right? Now, my son is four, and he thinks if he doesn't eat every hour, it's an emergency. He wants it to be the same level as if it's a newborn, but it's not. Uh, just put a feed trough out for that kid and just leave it full because I can't get anything done. Dad, can I have a snack? No. Go do something. Uh, I love him. It's because he's my son. That's why he's like that. Uh, here's what I want to say, though. You know, Satan used Scripture to try to uh, pull Jesus off mission. And right now, Satan can try to use what I'm teaching you to try to pull you off mission. He's going to try to use condemnation because I, I, I am certain that many of you within the sound of my voice hear this comparison to how much a newborn baby needs milk and should be pursuing after that nourishment. And you're, you're, you're actually listening to what I'm saying and you're comparing your own desire for God's word to that. And you're saying, hey, that does not line up. Satan wants you automatically to be condemned about that. He wants you to get discouraged. He wants you to start listening to this narrative of you're, maybe you're not really a Christian or maybe God doesn't love you or maybe there's something wrong with you. What I'm asking you to do is, is not to despair if you don't have that desire for God's word. Or maybe even if you once did, you know what I'm talking about. You remember what that's like, but, but that, that intense desire for his word has, has grown cold. Don't despair. There's, there's always a way of escape. Here's what it looks like. We repent as we realize, you know what, maybe I have let my love grow cold. Maybe I have my desire for God's word is, it's gotten stale and it's, it's not what it should be. 
that's not something for us to, to go into an emotional tailspin about. We can repent, we can trust in God's good promise that if, if we confess that sin that he's faithful and just to forgive us, we can repent, we can pray, and we can believe God for a hunger for his word to be cultivated in us. We can repent, we can ask God, Lord, stir that in me again. I want to hunger for your word the, babe, the way a newborn baby hungers for milk. I want, to, I want it to be an emergency. I, want to, I don't want someone else to have to come and tell me about it. I want to realize and recognize in myself if I'm getting to the point where I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied with other things, where your word is not a high priority for me. I don't want to be able to go days and weeks without feasting upon your word and it just be okay. Lord, help me. I need your help because the truth is, dear friends, we all need his help for this. This is not something we just choose to do. We're not just going to white knuckle it and say, yeah, I'm going to be hungry for his word. This is a work of the spirit alone. But what I'm trying to call us to is the bar that God has set, the encouragement that he gave us through the apostle Peter and all through the rest of the scriptures. He's pointing us to, he's calling us to, he's inviting us to, to come and to feast for free upon this beautiful bread of life. And I'm just asking us to to care about that, to understand what that should look like, to, to really honestly assess where we're at about it, and if it doesn't line up, to repent and ask for his help. Amen, that that's the way this looks. Amen, that God isn't going to come and treat us like a pinata tonight about our Bible intake and beat us up. That's not the way he works. It's, it's not, this isn't a guilt-based relationship. This, this relationship is built on love. And he's just, or every one of you that's actually letting this deal with your heart and is actually feeling what it is these words should cause you to feel, that, this, that these scriptures are actually working in your heart, and there is a desire stirring there. God's not, he's not sitting there mad about whatever else is going on. Listen, Paul said, forget what's behind, press forward to what's ahead, for the high call, that prize that is serving Christ Jesus. And that's what he wants us to do. Praise the Lord. I'm thankful for that. Even if you do desire to learn more about God's word, uh, we must honestly and humbly assess our motives. 1 Corinthians 8.1 uh, says this, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. This is the point. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Some of you have heard that said another way, that, that uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That verse is more commonly known that way. But here, here in the NASB, it says, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Here's, here's, the, real, here's the real difficult truth. You guys remember what Satan was doing with Jesus in the wilderness, trying to take the word and use it against Jesus? It's crazy that he can do that, right? I mean, here's, here's the sad truth. Satan knows the word better than most of us. He's been messing with it and twisting it a long time. He's been trying to use it against people for a long time. He's been trying to discourage people, pull them away from God by, by trying to, to, to say the right words, but it, with the wrong intentions. But here's, here's the truth. Knowledge, and here's what's really interesting about this scripture. It doesn't say knowledge wrongly applied. It gives no qualifiers. It says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Here's what you need to know, dear friend. As we answer the call of God to be like newborn babes, pursuing the truth of the word of God, like a, like a newborn is pursuing after that milk and that sustenance, that, that it, without it, it will not survive. The, when, we, when we pursue God's word like that, and we, we actually taste and see that the Lord's word is good for us, and it's helping us. And as we learn and as we grow, every single time we do that, 
with it is going to come a temptation for pride. Satan's going to try to take that beautiful thing, you doing the very exact thing that we are called to do, which is to learn and to grow in God's word. He's going to try to get you to feel like you're real awesome about it. He's going to get you to focus on the fact that maybe you know more than somebody else. He's going to maybe get you to study God's word, but the reason is that you want to have the answers when somebody asks the question. Or maybe you want to be able to argue somebody down. And here's what 1 Corinthians 8 tells us. All of that, all of those motives are disgusting, and it will totally nullify any of the benefit, any of the spiritual benefit. If, if the motive for us pursuing knowledge about God through his word, pursuing knowledge of his word, is just to have knowledge, if that's it, if it's not love, love for God and love for people, if that's not the motive driving us, then it's going to get tainted and it's going to get ugly. It'll be worth nothing, right? We can't do that. So we have to assess our motives. Even as this desire that we're praying for, that to, to want God's word more than anything else, as, that, as God answers that prayer, we have to watch Satan trying to come around the backside and trick us into being prideful as, as God grants our request and we do learn more, meditate more, uh, memorize more of his word. Praise the Lord. A desire to be like Jesus and to be disciplined for the sake of godliness is not the only reason we should take in as much of the Bible as we possibly can. There's a few other reasons I would get. I'm going to give you a few other reasons there's probably countless more. Uh, we see in Matthew 4 that we read today, and also Ephesians 6, which I referenced, we should desire uh, to take in as much of the Bible as we can so that we can fight for ourselves and so that we can fight for others. And what does this mean? Well, this, when we talk about fighting in a spiritual sense, we're talking about fighting forces of darkness, right? Ephesians 6 tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual principalities and powers uh, there's, there's dark forces in the world, and they want uh, to undo every good thing that God has done. And the reality is, we are called to do battle with them. That's why Ephesians 6 gives us a whole list of the armor of God, ending with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is what we're talking about. It's what we saw Jesus wield with incredible effectiveness in Matthew 4. Uh, just, just basically smacked the devil down uh, with the Word, pushed him right back. And so, uh, we, we want to take in as much of the Bible as we can so we can fight for ourselves, but also so we can fight for others. I don't know if you've ever known anybody in your life. I have a lot of times that people, they were believing lies. Satan had come and was whispering his mess, and they were buying it. They were, they were starting to believe what those lies were telling them and what, what those forces of darkness were trying to convince them of. And we know that uh, Satan is a deceiver. We know that the, the primary mode and the way that he goes about trying to destroy people is by lying to them. You can't do a whole lot else uh, but deceive. And so we, we, if we have the truth of the word of God, we can, we can fight. We see a beautiful picture of that in Matthew 4. Uh, but it's not just for us to defend ourselves, so we can step in sometimes and, and fight for somebody else. Uh, praise the Lord. I don't, I don't think my grandpa was right, but he raised me that if, if, if I ever saw a bully beating up somebody and I, didn't, and I didn't jump in, he found out about it, I got whooped when I got home, so... I don't know if that's just that coming out. Don't teach your kids that. That's not right. They need to tell the teacher and not get in a fight. But I don't know. I had a fun childhood. So anyways, hallelujah. From that perspective, anyways. Um, but we're fighting forces of darkness, not people. Okay? People are not the enemy, ever. Kind of, I just, I, 
I feel led by the Spirit of God to say, your, your husband is not the enemy. Wives. And uh, your wife is not the enemy, husbands. I don't, I don't know what the deal is. I th- Satan's always attacked marriage covenants because Christian marriage is one of the clearest reflections of the gospel in the world. And so if Satan can mess with a marriage, he can, he can try to shut down or kind of put under a basket uh, the beautiful light that should emanate out of a godly marriage where two people are committed to serving one another uh, in, in a Christ-like way. And uh, Satan wants to make your spouse the enemy in your mind. He's going to try every way he possibly can. Um, not the, that's not the only place he, he tries to get us to focus on people instead of him. We, he doesn't want us to see there's, there's, a, there's a puppeteer in the back pulling the strings. Um, you know, when people are coming at you crazy, and maybe it is your spouse, maybe it is a family member or a coworker or whatever, Listen, ultimately, uh, people are not our enemy, and we need to be able to see past them and see that there are, now, are some, sometimes are people just having a bad attitude, and there's not necessarily a overt, involved, demonic force right in that moment. Yeah, we don't want to be hyper-spiritual, but ultimately, somewhere along the line, if that person is not walking in love, they've bought a lie somewhere, and, the, and, and, and the, there's only one source for those lies. Those all flow straight up out of hell. Okay, so ultimately, however they got a hold of that lie that's leading to this behavior that's now crossed your path, we got to see past them and see that ultimately, whether directly or indirectly, the forces of darkness are involved in that, and we do battle with them. We wield the sword of truth against them, uh, and we love the person, and uh, that includes your spouse. Sometimes that's the hardest, though, right, because, you know, they married you, so they can't go anywhere, and if I feel like being ratchet one day, you know, did he say ratchet? Yeah, I know what that word means. I've been on the internet, all right, a couple times. Uh, if I just feel like being that way, you know, a lot of times they'll take it. Um, but that, that steals away from the glory of God and the joy that, that the marriage covenant is supposed to be. So I don't know. I, I, I had nothing specific in my notes about addressing that in, in terms of marriage. But just hear me, husbands. Your wife is not the enemy, ever. Not ever. And, and wives, your husband's not the enemy. That's your partner that God's given you to fight the enemy. So go back to back if you have to and scrap with him. Fight the right one, not each other. Amen. <clears throat> uh, so to fight for ourselves and others, um, we should seek to take in as much of the Bible as we can for the joy of fellowship with God. I, don't, I know for a fact we lose track of this beautiful point. In the book of John, chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh. And so, in this really, again, mysterious way, kind of like the hypostatic union, I can't totally tell you how this works, but somehow the very essence of Jesus Christ, our Savior King, is contained within these words. The Word is eternal, and, and it contains God's very essence and nature. And so, every single time we approach God's Word, we have this opportunity to actually fellowship with him. We, we, did you hear what I said? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh. Somehow, as we, as we spend time in the word of God, we are spending time with God. And I've told you many times, I've, I've been jealous about the disciples getting to go on the three-year camping trip with Jesus, but honestly, they, they, they are jealous of us having the full compilation of God's word at our disposal the way that we do. 
And guys, we're, we're going to answer for the access we have to the scriptures. In preparing for this, I read about a guy that did a missions work in, in, in the African bush, and they were, they were like six miles up a river from the farthest or the closest settlement, just really remote. There was a small group of Christians there. He said it was pitiful. The guy that was supposed to be the pastor, he had like six sermons. Nobody had a Bible, and he just remembered a few vague references to Bible stories, and that was how he was preaching. It was just every, every six weeks here came, and, and only if outside missionaries came in did they ever get something that really was uh, sourced from the Word of God as far as sermons were concerned. So these guys got money together, and thank God got the folks some Bibles. But, uh, man, it's, just, it's so easy for us to take for granted what we have. Um, and, and we don't just have access to the Word, man. We've got, I mean, I don't know what you use the Internet for, man, but if you get on there and do a, just a little bit of searching, there is so much, just a gold mine of resources uh, to help us study the Bible better. So praise God. We, we can actually fellowship with God. We can spend time with God in His Word. Every time we approach it, we are spending time with Him. I realize that's a hard concept to grasp, but here's what I promise you. If you will, by faith, approach his word like that, I, I believe you'll experience it. If you're like, eh, that's kind of an abstract concept. How does reading a book actually spending time with God? I'm telling you, the very essence and nature of, of Christ our King is, is contained within these words, and God will meet you there if you'll approach him by faith. Amen. So to fight uh, for ourselves and others, for the joy of fellowship with God, to encourage ourselves and to encourage others as well. Um, there's all kinds of examples I could say, but um, one, the first one that came to my mind is I was thinking about just being encouraged in the midst of difficult circumstances. Abraham uh, received a child of promise. God came to him in his old age and said, I'm going to give you a son. His name's Isaac. And uh, so that happened. Uh, he has Isaac, and, and God had told him that uh, through, through Isaac, all, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so Abraham believed God. The Bible says it counted to him as righteousness. But then some years later, God comes to him and says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to sacrifice that son I gave you to me. Real weird. And that's a real hard situation. But Abraham trusted and believed God. And so he marches Isaac to the mountain. Up they go. Straps him down. Lifts the knife. God intervenes. Provides a different sacrifice. All of that was to, first of all, just show the obedience of Abraham, but also to foreshadow that another sacrifice was coming in Christ. Uh, but the whole point I'm saying there is, in, in the whole middle of that, the Bible says elsewhere that here's what Abraham reasoned in his mind. Here's how he was functioning in that moment. Can you think about God saying to you, I need you to, I, you know, I got this big redemptive plan for humanity. Everybody's going to be blessed through your obedience, but I need you to sacrifice your kid. It's part of the deal. That, you want to talk about emotional trauma, you know. Like, you know, some of you didn't get as many crunchies in your yogurt as you normally like this week, and you just, you're ready to fall apart. Your faith's in trouble. God, where are you? You know, it's like this guy, God asks him to kill his kid. Where that's what God, yeah, I would have seriously, I'd have been like, am I going insane? This is this, I'm hearing the same God that said, this son, all the earth, all the earth is going to be blessed through him. What is going on here? And it says, Abraham, his faith, his faith in God was, was so strong. That in the midst of that incredibly difficult situation, he reasoned that God must, he's going to raise him from the dead then. Because God told me, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through this boy. And so even if he lets me carry this out, then he must going to raise him. That's how this is going to go, because I'm trusting God's promise. And here's what I'm saying to you, friends. As we 
feast upon the word of God, as we have the word of God written upon our hearts, as we know it, when we get into those difficult situations, the promises of God are there and we can stand like Abraham did. When, when, even when you're in situations where you're like, is, am I losing my mind? Is this really God? Where is God? This is weird and I don't know what to do. We can stand on his precious promises the way Abraham did on top of that mountain to encourage ourselves and to encourage others. Maybe, maybe you've not been in a situation like that, so you can't even understand what it's like to, for your faith to be rocked and you not really know uh, if you're going to make it. But, and maybe you won't, I don't know, but the chances are you may encounter somebody else that will be. And if you have the promises of God uh, written upon your heart and, and you've, you've spent time in his word, you know what God says and you trust it by faith, sometimes you, you'll be called upon to lend that faith to others. Uh, and that's a beautiful opportunity. Uh, the last reason I would say we should take in as much of the Bible as we can is, is for the sustaining of our very lives. Matthew 4.4, 4, uh, which we read earlier, says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's, there's life. There's life in these pages. There's life in these scriptures for those who believe. Uh, like manna in the wilderness, the word is meant to be our daily bread. D.L. Moody said this, a man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough for the next six months or take in sufficient air into his lungs for the next week. We must draw upon God's boundless store of grace from day to day as we need it. That, to me, is the best answer I have to somebody that's like, well, quit being a legalist. You don't have to read your Bible every day. Yeah, I guess. You don't have to eat every day or breathe every day either. You're, like, you're welcome to try that out. The problem is we, we're, we're very much in tune to our body saying, hey, I need air or hey, I need food. For some reason, we get real dull of hearing and we don't see how anemic our spirits get when we don't feed upon the bread of life that is the Word of God. Amen. So how do we take in the Bible? What does this spiritual discipline look like in a practical way? Um, I'll give you several things. First of all, we can take in the Bible by hearing the Bible. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Uh, Luke eleven twenty eight, Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So how do we hear the word of God? Well, one of the ways is, is what we're doing right now. And so I praise God for the fact that we can gather like this, that we can study God's word together, uh, that we have access to the Bible. Um, and so we can gather like this, and I believe this is the primary way uh, that God intends for us to hear it, is gathered together and uh, for his word to be taught. But we also live in an age where we have access to a lot of other things. It's funny, some of the books I was reading about this were dating themselves a bit. They were talking about, you know, you can... You can uh, uh, subscribe to cassette tape ministries and <laughs> how to hear the word, right? I was like, brother, you might want to do a revised edition on this. Ain't nobody getting any cassette tapes. But uh, we, have, we have some incredible tools at our disposal, audio podcasts, which have been an incredibly formative uh, thing for me in, in, in my walk with Jesus. I've had access to some Bible teachers and things I would have not otherwise, right? Um, I just wouldn't have even known. So praise God. Uh, we, we, we obviously take advantage of that here, um, try to have our sermons out so not only our faith family can stay together, but uh, it's crazy, man, when we look up the analytics, like where in the country and around the world people stumble upon uh, our podcast and listen to the gospel being preached. So 
Uh, in addition to sermons and Bible teaching, you can also, there's audio Bibles, right? The whole Bible on audio. And so, uh, man, you can, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were saying, you know, that's really helpful for me. I can fold laundry or do whatever. Sometimes there's just tasks that don't take a lot of mental fortitude. I can, I can turn on an audio Bible and, and listen to a few chapters of God's word being read to me and, and I'm getting it that way. It's another way. And uh, different people learn in different ways. Sometimes, you know, there's people that just learn better from an auditory standpoint. Some people are more visual learners. I'm kind of a combo. I do good if I have access to both, but uh, we should hear God's word. We should put ourselves in position to hear God's word. And uh, I do believe there's something uh, special about gathering like this. Hebrews 10 says that we shouldn't forsake this, coming together like this, uh, and, and, and hearing and uh, being taught God's word together is a part of his plan of redemption. That When we come together like this, it's part of how God prepares us to then go out and do what it is he's made us to do in the world. Uh, but we've got so many other ways now that we can hear God's word, and I'm so thankful for that. So we can hear God's word. We can read God's word. Revelation 1.3 says, uh, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and heed what is written in it. Notice that last part. We, we would like, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Yeah, it said bless. But then at the end it says we've got to heed it. can't just read it. Uh, this echoes the words of James, right? In James 1, starting in verse 22, he says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely, not, hear this, not merely hearers who delude themselves. We talked about the deluding and, and deceptive nature of the forces of darkness. You can delude yourself by being someone that hears the word, reads the word, but doesn't do anything about it. We can lie to ourselves. Uh, we can justify and convince ourselves that that applies to somebody else and not me, or it's not that important, or all the ways, right? It's crazy. So he says, um, be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty... You hear the law of God being referenced, that's the Old Testament, uh, specifically even the Pentateuch. At the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So we need to read God's word and do what it says. Now, sometimes, um, like we talked about with fasting last week, we, we all have a little bit of a pharisaical um, tendency. Sometimes we like to, we like to, and it's not bad to create goals, and, and that's part of sometimes how discipline works, weaving these disciplines into our lives. But there, there are those that have tried to say, you know, you got to read this much Bible in order for it to count or whatever. Listen, you would be far, far, far better off reading one scripture a day and meditating on it than you would skipping it because you're like, I don't have time to read three chapters. Far better. So read it fast, read it slow. It doesn't matter, friend. Just read it. Get your face in the book. Amen. That was a good spot to say amen. Everybody missed it. All right. Uh, just read it. Read the words of God. Feast upon them. Now, here's, here's the number one pushback for this. And, and we've probably all been guilty of at least thinking, even if we haven't been so silly as to say it out loud. People say, I don't have time. I don't have time to read the Bible. If you could just see my life, I don't have time to read the Bible. Well, get this. <clears throat> These are 2017 statistics. 
Average American spends four hours a day consuming media. So that's like social, that's standard uh, like old school media stuff like TV. Um, and the split demographically, if you're younger than 30, you probably spend more time on social than you do watching TV. If you're over 30, that tends to go more to TV, less on social. But the, the average is four hours a day. Okay, Take that times 30. Why did I do that? Because that's a month. That's 120. 120 hours a month we're spending consuming media, the average person. You might be like, not me. I never sit down for four hours and watch TV. No, no, no. That's cumulative throughout the day. Okay? So set a timer or something on how many times we're doing that. Okay? Four hours a day is the average. <laughs> I, I hope we're under average here a bit. I'm hoping. 120 hours. It, um, the, the, the advent of audio Bibles has made it a clearly confirmable fact that you can read the entire Bible at a pulpit-style pace. I'm not talking fast like I'm talking, even like Lawrence Fishburne reading it style, Morgan Freeman reading it style, 71 hours. You can read the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Is anybody feeling stupid yet? I'll do all the math for you. 120 hours a month, typically we're spending with our face in some kind of screen consuming media. It would take you roughly 71 hours. So if you would just, just, if you would just less than half your media consumption for one month and spend that time reading the Bible, you get through the whole thing. I don't have time. You probably do. You probably do. The issue is not normally time, dear friends. It's normally sloth. Yeah. It's normally sloth. Or it's just jacked up priorities. We're just not thinking about it. Um... Or we're kind of like goats sometimes. Like if you, if you eat enough of that other stuff, you're just not hungry for God's word. You're not like a newborn baby that needs milk because you filled up on YouTube videos of cats and other dumb stuff and people jumping lawnmowers over stuff and whatever, right? Like, yeah, you probably don't have any <laughs> need for the Bible because your eyes just shut, you know, uh, and you passed out after a, a binge on uh, Facebook watching videos about nothing, right? It's, it's amazing. Um, I want to say this, though, and I'm really serious about this. Some do struggle to read and comprehend, and I know that keeps some of you out of, of this way. Some of you have moved more to hearing the Word of God uh, to offset that, but some, for some people, reading is difficult, and I get that, and I have all the compassion in the world for that. Uh, but I would encourage you with this. Uh, it, it, this account is in Robert Sumner's book, The Wonder of the Word of God. He was an evangelist. Uh, he tells a story about a man from Kansas City. This guy uh, worked on oil rigs, I think. He was, um, don't quote me on that part, but basically, however, he worked around dangerous stuff. There was an explosion. His face was badly disfigured, lost both of his hands, lost his eyes. Uh, he's burned up bad. The guy had become a Christian recently before that. And one of the things he was most upset about after the accident was the fact that he now had no way to read the Bible. He couldn't see. Uh, he, somehow somebody told him that there was a woman printing Braille Bibles, I think, in Europe. And so he uh, got somebody to order, get him one, and so got the Braille Bible there. And, uh, you know, if you remember the detail of the story, he lost his hands too. Most people that can't see use their hands to read Braille, but he'd heard that this woman was using her lips to read the Braille. But he was super disappointed because he took the, he took the Braille Bible and put it up to his mouth, and, and he figured out the nerve endings in his lips were so messed up from the explosion, he couldn't determine what the different figures were. But he just happened in trying one time that his tongue was sticking out. 
and he realized he could totally tell what was happening with his tongue. And this brother, at the time of, of the writing of this book, had read the Bible four times through with his tongue on Braille. I know reading's hard for some of you. I'm just saying, if you really want it, you can press through, man. <laughs> God will help you. A lot of us with two good eyes and 20-20 vision haven't been through the Bible one time. His brother's read it with his tongue many times. Don't worry, I feel like a heel about that too. You ain't alone. We're all in that. We're all enjoying that one together. And we're just sitting in the pot and simmer. Mmm. Making some sad soup. God's helping us, isn't he? Amen. We, uh, we should hear God's word. We should read God's word. We should study God's word. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We should study God's word. That's different than reading. Uh, reading, uh, you know, you're not, you're not kind of stopping and paying attention to a lot of details. You're, you're, you're just, you're just kind of reading through uh, at a pace where you can understand what's going on and comprehend, but you're not really trying to dive in. Studying God's word is different. You're going to notice different things. You're going to go to a much slower pace. Um, and, and why is it important? Well, because there's a lot of real beautiful gold and things that you'll understand as you begin to study God's word, paying attention to things like context and word usage, grammatical uh, things, that, that grammatical elements of, of the text. And, and some of you are like, okay, now he's nerding out. But hold on. Like, it, it's real important sometimes. It's not just things that Bible nerds care about. Uh, in Galatians 3, Paul makes this, this like pivotal argument about the gospel uh, based on the singular or plural form of a word. His whole point in what he's saying is Abraham, God's promise to Abraham was to his seed, not his seeds. And so what he's trying to teach his Jewish brethren is that the promise was, was not to all of us in some vague way. This promise was to the seed of Abraham. And that seed is Christ. And he goes on to preach the gospel out of this point that whether there was an S or not an S on the end of this word. Right? And so all the way down to that little word detail, Paul's building a whole argument on that. And so it's, it's not always, every word is not always that crucial, but there's, there's some deep and beautiful things to be found as we study God's word carefully. You've got to pay attention to things like context. Context is the reason why you can go to any Christian bookstore and find a, a plethora of knickknacks with Jeremiah 29.11 inscribed on it because everybody likes the fact that Jeremiah 29.11 says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. Yeah, I memorized it too, right? Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, context would show you that actually what God is doing is he's talking to a specific group of people that are in exile in Babylon, and he's giving them instructions about how to conduct themselves in the midst of that exile, and he's letting them know, I have a plan for you. He's talking to them, the exiles in Babylon, and so unless you're a Babylonian exile, Jeremiah 29 isn't for you. Now, you can see the faithfulness of God to people who rebel over and over and over again in that, and you can apply that to you. The rebel over and over and over again part, and yet God's still merciful to you. You, you, you catching you catch him adrift? That's, that part, you can have that. Claim that. Write that one on your fridge. I'm a rebel, and God's merciful to me a lot of times. But context would, would, would help us not to lift verses out like that and try to make it apply to stuff that, that it doesn't apply to. 
Basically, the, the idea that somebody is, is pulling from that verse is true about God. But we, we, we do the Bible and we do our God a disservice when we don't pay attention to context. Um, and that's not the only thing that happens. There's lots of verses that get lifted out of the words around them and get used for a lot of goofy stuff. Um, and it makes Christians look bad and it makes Jesus look bad. So we can't do that. We need to understand, be able to figure out what context is teaching us uh, and look at verses What's before it, what's after it, what's really being said here? What is the original intent of the author? That's part of what we're studying. Um, and we need to understand there's an important difference between interpretation and application, okay? And, and, and we have tended to, I don't know how long this has been, but we've gotten real hip on application, not so good on interpretation. And what does that mean? That means we've gotten real good at sending people to the Bible to figure out what does that mean to you? Here's the thing. The Bible was, was written with a specific intent and purpose by an author. Ultimately, that's God. He did use human authors. He used their experience and their life and what they were going through to get his point across. But ultimately, there is, there is, a, there is a subject and there is a point and a purpose to all of what God has written in the Scriptures. And um, the purpose is not for us to go and just kind of willy-nilly think or figure out, feel our way through, how do I think this applies to me? We should do the work of interpretation, which is to figure out what, did, what does God mean? God has a point. What is God's point? That's first. Then we, take, then we go over to application. What, how does God's point apply to me? Right? Instead of only doing application, which is uh, Jeremiah 29.11 makes me feel fuzzy. And so, yay, right? No. The interpretation there is... God is faithful and merciful. He, he was real faithful to Israel as over and over again they spit in his face. And we can see that's a part of his character, that even though we are wretched, he is for us and he's going he's gonna to stay with us all the way to the end. That's the, that's the interpretation of that verse. That's what God's doing there. The application is, praise God, he'll be there for me too. Right? Instead of uh, all, the, all the other, you know, Knickknacks. Okay. We need to know the difference between interpretation and application. We need to use those correctly. Um, it's not a bad thing for us to sit in a circle and say, what does this verse mean to you? Because the interpretation, what God is saying, can apply to a group of 10 people in different ways, and we can learn from one another in the way it applies. That's a totally worthwhile and beautiful thing to do, and we should do it. But we shouldn't just do it. We should also know how to study God's word and know what he means to make sure we're not into application that makes no sense in, in reality of what God's actually saying. Amen. Okay. I knew you'd be less excited about that one, but it's real important. We should study God's Word. We've got to hear it, read it. Studying it is a part of what this looks like. We should memorize God's Word. We should memorize God's Word. Um, if I thought studying was going to be exciting, now we're at memorization. Yay! Wave a flag, right? Uh, Hebrews 10.16 says, uh, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. God's intention is for his laws, his word, to be written upon our heart and to be imprinted upon our mind. And uh, the, again, the most common pushback, I, for, do you, I mean, do you see the value of memorization? Everything else we talked about, like, Having the word of God written upon our heart is real beautiful when we're in an Abraham and Isaac on top of the mountain moment, or somebody else we love is, or we're in a fight for our life, man. Um, you know, 
Jesus pulled a bunch of swords out in that fight, different ones, man, and he had them, and they were sharp, and they were ready to go. And that's because the word of God was, was written upon his heart. He had, he had memorized it. Satan didn't say, hey, why don't you turn these breads to stone? Jesus had to pull out his Gideon Bible, like, hold on a second, let me see, go back to the, we'll go back to the glossary. I know there's something about, right? It was written upon his heart. He was able to do battle. Um, we should memorize scripture. The most, the most common pushback I hear to this is, I got a bad memory, can't memorize scripture. And listen, I believe that I have probably found the limit to my mental capacity on certain days. Like, if any more information goes in the front, something's got to fall out the back. Like, I'm there, right? I've hit the rev limiter on that. So I, I get you. However, I just, I, I, I will bet anybody, any amount of money they want to bet, that if I gave you a list of 10 written directions, a sentence long a piece, and, the, and if you followed those 10 directions exactly, it led to a billion dollar check with your name on it, and I gave you 24 hours to memorize those 10 lines of directions, I guess there might be some of you in here that might not get it. I feel bad for you, but I guarantee you, everybody, I don't care how tired you were, what, what would you do to memorize those? I mean, you would... You would you would drink more caffeine. You'd tape your eyes open. You would do whatever it took, man, to memorize those 10 lines of text as you get to the billion-dollar check. Would you or would you not? Or are you going to try to tell me, well, I'm above that. I don't care about a billion dollars. You're a liar, and you would try to memorize where the billion-dollar check was. Yes? Yes, you would. But what does that tell us? It tells us, it tells us really that, that we, we see higher value in, in what we could buy with that billion-dollar check, then, then, then we see as, as the treasure of the Scriptures. And uh, we need to just be honest about that and ask God to help that not be the case. I want to value what He has for me, spending time with Him and His eternal truth far more than I would a billion-dollar check. Um, so praise God. It comes down to desire. It comes down to what we value. And we should seek to memorize scripture. There's all kinds of, there's apps now. There's an app for that, okay? There's all kinds of tools. I know people that have used flashcards. But the bottom line is, if you have a desire to memorize God's word and you ask him to help you, you can. Because he said, after those days says the Lord, I'll put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I'll write them. Maybe you naturally have a terrible memory and scripture memorization is super hard for you totally get that. But God will help you. And if he's in the mix, then your physical limitations are pretty meaningless because God will help. Jesus read, spoke, studied, and memorized God's word. Those of us who follow him should delight in the opportunity we have to do the same. I said this earlier, but familiarity breeds contempt. We need to repent for the fact that that we oftentimes treat God's word as a common thing, that we literally sometimes prefer to watch idiotic videos on the internet about nothing than we do to approach God in his word. We need to own up to that and tell the truth and repent and ask for God's help. I saw a video sometime back, I'm sure some of you did, and I guess I need to, I don't want to sound like um, there's no usefulness for the internet, there's tons of very useful things that happen on the internet, and this is one of them. I think it was even on social media that I saw this video. But somebody had bought and shipped in crates of Bibles, and, and a bunch of Chinese Christians were opening up these crates. 
And I'll never, I will never forget watching people pick these Bibles up and they're just clutching them and kissing them. Like, and, and we, we would like, oh, that's, none of us would be so undignified as to do, these people were weeping and just so happy to get a copy of the Bible that they could read. And, and you can think whatever you want about that, man, I want to be like that. I want to really be so thankful that I have access to the Word of God, and not just that I have access to these precious words, but He's promised to help me by His Holy Spirit to understand them, to help me digest them, to write them upon my heart so that I can have them. I don't ever want this to be a common thing to me. I want this to be precious to me above all else because it's a beautiful gift from a God who loves me and is perfect. Praise God. I've told you, I don't want to talk about these spiritual disciplines without making a clear connection to the gospel. How does, how does the spiritual discipline of Bible intake connect to the gospel? Well, friends, this one I, th- I think is the easiest. The whole Bible is about the gospel. The whole Bible is about the gospel. I alluded to it earlier, but it is one redemptive arc. That's why it's so amazing that it's written by 40 authors over 1,500 years, and it tells one story. It's one story. It's our story. It is the good news of the gospel, that God created us, that we rebelled, that immediately in Genesis 3, he's already prophesying that, that yeah, that the, the enemy's going to bruise the heel of her seed, but that that, that, that serpent's going to have his head crushed. It's going to go down for him. It's going to be bad. And it moves on through. It moves on through. You see Noah and Abraham. You see God working the plan of redemption. you got Isaac and Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is one of them. He goes to Egypt. He's led to prominence. He's able to save his family through the famine. The other prophecy about them being in a foreign land for 400 years, that comes true is there in Egypt. Then he sends Moses, a type of Christ, to come and bring them out through the Exodus and the Passover, the blood on the doors. And then you go through the time of the judges and you see God's faithfulness even when Israel's nasty. And then they beg for a human king when he tells them, I don't want to do that. I want to be your king. They, I don't care. Give us what the other countries have. And so he gives it to him. And then David and the covenant he makes with him, the prophets come, the exile, the 400 years of silence, and then Christ. It's all one story. It all ties together. And it's all about one thing, God's incredible commitment to redemption and eternal hope and life for his people. That's what the Bible is. The whole Bible is the good news about Jesus. You just got to know how to look for it, man. When Rahab the harlot's putting a scarlet thread out the window, man, you think that's just a coincidence that that's the color of that thread? You think it's just a coincidence that her grandson marries and redeems this girl, right? And out of that comes Sam and Obed, Jesse, and then David. You think all that's a coincidence, man? You think the Bible is showing you step by step how God has been faithful to his promise of redemption the whole way through. Friends, you just got to know how to look. The whole Bible is about the gospel. You get to the, you get to the gospels and it, t- it tells you, here's the culmination, here's how it happened, here's what Jesus did and here's what he taught. And then you, you see Acts, you see what the early church, how, how God breathes his spirit upon it and it explodes in the ancient world. And then you got Romans through Revelation that teaches us as people how to live in light of all the beauty of the gospel being fulfilled in Christ. It's all about the gospel, friends. This Bible is about the gospel. It's the best news anybody's ever going to hear. And these words are more true and more precious than any of the words anybody's ever going to say or utter or read or get a hold of. It is the gospel. This is our hope. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. 
I just led a bunch of guys through a discipleship process. It took us six months, and we sat around, and I was asking them, what, what would you get out of this the most? And, and almost consistently, it was the fact that this book we were using to go through, uh, it, it, it connects the dots of God's redemptive history. I think for so many people, the Bible is this fragmented group of moral stories that, that maybe connect in, in some kind of weird way, but they're not sure. And, and, and God, for, for us, man, over these last six months, just took a magnifying glass and showed us, here's how this dot connects to that dot, and that dot connects to that dot. And we, we, stood, we stood back in awe and wonder at the incredible power of God, the beauty of his word, its interconnectedness, and all that he's doing on our behalf. He's incredibly merciful. He's incredibly faithful. His faithfulness is immeasurable. His mercy, we can't describe it. He's a good and perfect God. And I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for his word. My prayer for us, friends, is that we can be a people of the word, joyfully and passionately committed to hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, and sharing in the beautiful truth of God, that all of that would be for his glory, for our good. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, first of all, we confess We confess our apathy. We confess that oftentimes we treat your word as a common thing. We repent as a people collectively. We say to you, Lord, we have many times disregarded your word. We have many times chosen to feast on things that only ended up hurting us instead of helping us. We have not hungered like a newborn for milk for the truth of your word, but we thank you, Lord. We thank you for graciously bringing these things to our attention. We thank you for mercifully allowing us to repent and and confess and to, to come to you, Lord, and receive forgiveness. We ask not just for your forgiveness, Lord, but we ask for your empowering grace that, that we would hunger for your word above everything else, that we would be like newborn babes seeking for that milk that's got everything we need and nothing we don't. Thank you for the perfection and the truth of your word. Thank you for the miraculous nature of your word. Thank you, God. Thank you that it is a beautiful story. Thank you that it all ties together. Thank you that your character, thank you that the Bible is about you first, primarily, but that we get to be a part, that you've brought us in, you've included us. Thank you. Thank you that your Bible reveals that you have a plan. Thank you, Lord, that even when we don't see how that's working in our life, Lord, even when we're confused and we're discouraged, your plan is still moving forward. You have not left the throne. Your faithfulness is never in question. Your promises will always, always be true. So, Lord, please write these promises upon our heart. Help us. Help us, Lord. Help us to seek to memorize and have written upon our heart and mind the truth of your word, not just for ourselves, not just so we can be encouraged, but God, so that we can be effective participants in the beautiful, glorious mission of redemption that you've undertaken. Thank you that we get to be ambassadors, co-laborers with you in gospel mission. Thank you that we get to have the truth of the gospel upon our lips. We are not worthy of that beautiful gift, but thank you that you've brought us in and made us righteous given us worth that we couldn't have earned. We love you. We trust you. We worship you. We exalt you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.